Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for allowing me to be up here and share this morning. Well, when Dana asked me to help out when, uh, during Tom's sabbatical, uh, I was prompted to say yes, uh, and not because I'm a preacher by any sense of the word, or that I enjoy public speaking. I'm not sure that many actually do, but I agreed to do it because of you. Let me explain. My wife, Kenny, and I started attending Erickson Covenant Church last May after moving from Kelowna. We were welcomed to this loving community, and we were blessed by the worship and the teaching. We made quick friends. We were invited into your homes. Uh, you made us feel like family. I've had quite a bit of church experience in my life. I was baptized as an infant in the United Church. I was saved in the Anglican Church. Our children were, we had our children when we were attending a Baptist church. Then we moved to a Mennonite Brethren Church, and then back to the Anglican Church and now a covenant church. My best friends growing up were both Catholic and Mormon. And if that wasn't enough, for the last 20 years, I've been working for the Willow Creek Association, which is a non-denominational organization that serves churches across the country. And I've visited literally hundreds of churches across the country and in every province across our great land. Our ministry mantra has been, There's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. We believe that the local church has the power to change lives and to impact communities, cities and regions, our country, and eventually the world. Well, over the past year, Kenny and I have been experiencing the local church working right. This local church. Just like the Acts 2 church, People caring and serving for one another, living sacrificially, worshiping together, and reaching out to your community. So, when you join a community like this and someone asks to ask you to help out, it's natural just to say yes. So, it's really your fault that I'm standing here <laughs> and that Kenny is serving in Sunday school this morning. So, the most question that I've been asked since I've moved here is, what made you move to Creston? It seems to be asked with a bit of a suspicious tone. We want to know why you're here and how you found out about this place. (laughs) We want to make sure that no one else finds out about this because it's our little secret. Well, the truth is I do have roots in the valley. I moved here for the first time 50 years ago. I grew up in that little pink house that was directly across from the grain elevators. I attended Creston Elementary School. I graduated from Prince Charles in 1980. I played on Creston's only high school provincial championship basketball team. It was on April 30th, 1980, my grad year, that the high school burnt down. And after school, I did what most young adults did, is I left town to go to school and to find a job. Well, it took me 38 years, a marriage, five children, several careers, but I finally made it back to the valley. And I promise I won't tell anyone. Okay, enough about me. Let's dig into the series again, the King's Speech. We've been learning about Jesus' longest and arguably 
the most important speech to his followers. He's been describing a new kingdom, a radical new way of living. Over the past three weeks, we've looked at the Beatitudes. They have described a new character we are to adopt as citizens of this new kingdom. I like to think of what Jesus was sharing as the first reality TV series. It was not Survivor or Big Brother or Master Chef. It was the new reality, the hidden world known as the kingdom of heaven. This was a radical, countercultural idea, way outside the box. It's hard for us to even understand this paradigm shift, what this paradigm shift meant to the disciples. They lived in a world that saw little change and were, and, <clears throat> sorry, and where tradition was based on their foundation. Today, we live where change is just normal. Think about the changes we've experienced over our lives. It's truly amazing what we've been witness to. We can actually say the only thing that constant in our life has been change. As an example, when I was a kid, my grandparents who lived in Cranbrook, they saw the first automobile roll into town. They saw the first TV arrive. They had a telephone um, and it was an actually a rotary dial phone. No buttons was actually attached to wires on a street on telephone poles in the street. But they shared it with four of their neighbors. They called it a party line. It was maybe the first form of social media. <laughs> How times have changed. We now have people living in space. <clears throat> we shop from home. We share our lives with billions on Facebook. And there's new technology coming out every day. It's just normal for us. We have smartphones and we have, um, <clears throat> excuse me, we soon to live in smart houses and drive smart cars. <clears throat> that wasn't so for the Jesus' uh, followers during that time. The concept of a new kingdom and a new way of living was radical, mind-bending idea for them. Many of us followers of, of the day were uneducated, and it must have felt like a foreign language, and I'm sure they were confused. A few weeks ago, Canny was teaching in Sunday school, and she missed Tom's message. And in preparation for our small group, she wanted to listen to the message on the podcast. Well, when she played it, somehow it was playing way too fast. You know how much Tom packs into his message? Well, think about hearing what he was saying doubles in double speed. She came to me and said, I can't keep up. It's just way too fast. Can you help me? I can picture the disciples hearing Jesus speaking and saying exactly the same thing. Whoa, slow down. This is too fast. What do you want us to do? What? We've had this wrong the whole time? Who's blessed? Oh, Jimmy Crickets, what are you talking about? It's, <clears throat> it turns out, by the way, that there, are a, there is a switch on your little devices that allows you to slow down and speed up the playback function. I think maybe the disciples wish that they had that same function. So, to oversimplify it, Jesus, the new king, tells his followers about a kingdom and then describes the character of the, the citizens of this new kingdom, the Beatitude. Basically, choose to act like this and you'll be happy. Well, maybe not that simple. But that brings us up to today. Matthew chapter 5, 13 to 16. If the Beatitudes tell us who we are in this new kingdom, today's message will answer the question, what is our purpose? If you search Google for what's my purpose in life, you will find 3,100,000,000 results. About. About. 
go to Amazon and you can purchase over 70,000 books that answers that same question. YouTube video is full of videos that says that say how to find your purpose in five minutes or less. Some of these clips have tens of millions of views. And even in the Christian world, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, has sold over 60 million copies. It's obvious that people are looking for some answers. So, do you know what your purpose is? It's one of life's biggest questions. I think there's something innate in us that uh, makes us want to know what our purpose is. What I was made for. What is the reason that I'm here? It's a personal journey to figure that out. So, see if you can relate to any of these people. Do you feel like life has a purpose? I do. I think so. I'm here to make people happy and smile. Educate and entertain. To marry my woman. Being a mother to my two children. Different times in your life, you have different purposes. Spiritually, emotionally. Personal, professional. I think I'm still trying to figure that out, my purpose. My challenge sometimes can be figuring out which one I want to care about most today. I'm only 14, so I don't really know what my purpose is at the moment. Still looking now. I think most people equate their purpose to monetary ambitions. There's something deeper than, you know, what kind of car you drive and how nice you look. I love to inspire, motivate, and encourage people. Whenever I can to be a mentor. Being available to help someone in their journey. Because I feel like there are a lot of people in this world that are lost and don't have anyone there for them. The purpose of your life is sort of defined by your actions and by the manner in which you've lived. I'm here to help inspire other people to live life to their fullest. Like, I'm meant to be nice with everyone. Open a world to empathy. At this point in my life, I'm feeling like, who knows? And as I'm getting older, I'm definitely trying to figure out more and more. Because there are many people whose career, how they make a living, where their passion is, and what they're good at is actually uh, their job. I feel like I have a purpose in life because I just want to keep on moving forward. Always learning, growing. I think it's just that journey and the curiosity about life. Do what you're passionate about. Don't just get caught up in that sort of, you know, hamster wheel of getting by. I really love animals, writing, just storytelling. To share my gifts and talents with other people. Figure out how I can live to be at least 110. Making people laugh and, and having fun. I believe my purpose is to have children. And I'm very excited for that. The purpose of life is to experience it. Enjoy opportunities and also recognize that there's going to be hills and valleys. Take advantage of being alive. Exchange as much love as you can while you're here. To live the best life you can with a as most enthusiasm as you can so that other people will benefit by your having lived. So do you know what your purpose is? Here's my logic. We're told in Genesis 1 that we were made in the image of God. And in Romans 8, we, that upon taking a step of faith and accepting Christ, his spirit dwells in us. And I figure that he knows us pretty well. And it makes sense that Jesus knew that we would seek to understand what our purpose is. So, in one of his first messages, he addresses these big questions. Who we are and what is our purpose? Jesus makes it clear and simple and in less than five minutes. Let's read what he says. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. 
You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's it. Did you catch it? Your purpose is to be salt and light. Jesus uses this simple, everyday illustration to explain exactly what your purpose is to be. As you know, Jesus liked to use parables, and he often offers an explanation or interpretation. But these examples were so commonplace to his audience that his audience would understand the concepts immediately. Salt and light were part of their everyday Jesus speaks to his, to, sorry, Jesus speaks to those who are following him. Those who have a sense or, to those who know or have a sense that there is something special about this man. They are thirsty to learn more. And he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. This is one of the places where I think we miss something in the modern trans, modern English translation. The King's James Version, translates this verse, ye are the salt of the earth. Now, ye is an archaic word, which means you all, or that would be y'all if you're from the south. The Greek translation of the word you means you alone. So what Jesus is saying is you all and you alone are the salt of the earth. Well, what's he getting at? Well, I first, at first I think it was a great compliment Salt is a necessity of life in the ancient times, and thus great value was attached to it. Salt was so important that it was sometimes used as money. Roman soldiers of Jesus' day were paid with it. In fact, our word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, or salt money, which, is, uh, which refers to the payments to, that the soldiers received. When we use the phrase, he or she is not worth their salt, it is a carryover from the idea of the high value that salt was in biblical times. Jesus wanted his followers to know that they were valued. According to the Salt Institute, and there is such a thing, there is, there is over 14,000 uses of salt. So, I'll just briefly describe each one of them for you. Okay. We use, but we do use a lot of salt, millions of tons of salt each year. But let's look at three primary purposes. First, it's a seasoning. Second, it's a preservative. And thirdly, salt is essential for life. So salt is one of our five basic tastes. What are they? Salt, sweet, bitter, savory, and sour. So food without salt is very bland. Imagine eating French fries or popcorn without salt. Salt enhances both flavor and makes food more aromatic. And if we are to be salt, then we should enhance the world around us likewise. Add flavor and, and, add flavor and a spice to life. We are, not, we are not to be bland or quiet. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So secondly, salt is a preservative. It's hard to imagine life without refrigeration, 
But in biblical times, there was no Whirlpool or Samsung, LG or Frigidaire. So it was essential for the survival in those days because it was the only way to preserve meat and fish. The salt was rubbed into it before it was stored. It was used to arrest or at least hinder the process of decay or spoiling of the food. So the followers of Jesus were told to act like a preservative to prevent rot and decay and to be a stabilizing factor in their society. Jesus wanted men and women to stand up for morality, fairness, justice, and peace. Historically, Christianity has, in fact, had a profound positive effect on our world. The most dramatic impact Christianity has had on our world is that it has attached a new value to human life. Prior to to Christianity, infanticide and abandonment of children was a common practice. Hospitals, as we know them, began through the influence of Christianity. The Red Cross was started by evangelical Christian. Most colleges and universities have Christian origins founded by Christians for Christian purposes. The same could be said for orphanages, adoption agencies, relief organizations, disaster response, international justice, shelters, food banks. The list can go on and on of the dramatic impact Christianity has had on this world. And Christians continue to have a positive impact. Our calling today is to be a moral antiseptic, keeping the corruption of society at bay by opposing moral decay by the way we live, by our actions and our words. So, not only is salt a seasoning and a preservative, but it's also critically essential to life. It is literally true that without salt, there would be no human or animal life. In our bodies, salt is responsible for nerve and muscle function. Salt levels regulate electrolytes, blood pressure, digestion, and our temperature. If we move salt, if we remove salt from our diet, we won't be along for very long. It also makes us thirsty. It makes us crave water, which is also essential to our life. In all its uses and function, salt makes a difference. As Christians, we should make a difference as well. But unfortunately, there's a horrifying new trend happening today. George Barna, the church statistician, says that his research shows that, and I quote, the average Christian in the average church is almost indistinguishable by the rest of society. The fundamental moral and ethical difference that Christ can make in how we live is missing. When in our teens we claim to be saved but get pregnant, do drugs, and use alcohol at the same rate as the general teenage population. Marriages of Christians end in divorce at the same rate as the rest of society. When Christians cheat in business or lie, steal, and cheat on their spouses at the same statistical level as those who say they are not Christian, then something is horribly wrong, unquote. If we as Christians lose the qualities of Christ-likeness that make us distinct and become like the society around us, we no longer have a positive impact. We become a hindrance instead of a preservative. I think that's what Jesus was referring to when he says, but if salt loses its flavor, how can it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing to be, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. But technically speaking, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a stable compound, but it can very easily become contaminated and rendered unusable. 
When this happens, salt is just thrown out because it's no longer of any value as either a preservative or as flavoring. Our Christian values can be diluted and contaminated by the world around us and likewise can lose their strength if they do not remain pure. I want you to notice what Jesus says and does not say. He does not say you, you all can be the salt of the earth, nor does he say you should be the salt of the earth. But Jesus says, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. To be salt, we don't have to be spectacular or sensational or even successful by world standards. To be salt, we just have to affect the immediate world around us. So secondly, we're told to be light. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Literally, Jesus told his disciples, you and you alone are the light of the world. Apart from you, there is no other light in a world of darkness. Have you ever experienced total darkness? When I was a teenager, my family traveled to California, and we stopped at the Oregon Caves in southern Oregon. We trekked for several kilometers underground through lit tunnels and underground chambers, and it was amazing. We arrived at this massive underground room full of stalactites and stalagmites, and they called it the cathedral. Then our guide turned off the lights, and we experienced true darkness for the first time. Not a hint of light underground. I couldn't see anything. I was totally blinded. Then our guide lit a single candle, and that little candle illuminated the entire cave that we were in. Just a small pinpoint of light can make all the difference between light and darkness, between total blindness and the ability to see. We see the metaphor of Jesus as light in the Bible often. Jesus himself describes himself as light in John 8:12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We are called to walk in the light. Paul reminds us, reminds believers in Ephesians 5, 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are the light of the world. Sorry, you you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We are also called to reflect the light. In the same way that the moon merely reflects the light of the sun, Christians are to reflect the light of Christ. Just as the sun is the source of light in our universe and our our moon reflects that, the light of the sun, Jesus is our source of light in the world and we, his followers, are to reflect that light. Notice the qualifying statement in verse 16. Let your light shine before men. The key little phrase is before men. You can turn on a light in an empty room, and it will dispel darkness, but to what end? The word let gives us a choice to reflect the light of Christ to meet a certain need. So Jesus says two things will happen when you shine your light. First, men will see your good works. The the word for good in Greek is kalos. It means attractive, beautiful, or noble. Jesus is calling us to a nobility in the things that we do. I don't fully understand the cultural challenges faced by Jesus' followers, 
but I can clearly see what we are facing today. I'm a bit of a news junkie, and I get my news fixed several times a day, and I'm starting to wonder if it's causing me some emotional damage. We are faced with natural and man-made disasters, political and government corruption, fraud, theft, scam, terrorism, violence, civil disobedience, homelessness, suicide, fraud, theft, terror, uh, sorry, homeless, uh, poverty, civil wars, disease, and famines. And that's all in the morning news, and it gets worse from there. How, as Christians, do we face these struggles? I would suggest that by the choice to reflect the love of Christ and by the, by the way we live, to live nobly. We live in a watching culture where people are looking for something worth living for and something to be grounded to. They, too, are looking for a purpose. People will notice when you're a follower of Jesus and you allow his light to shine through you. So there's a second thing that happens when you let your light shine before men. They will give God the credit. Verse 16 says, they glorify your father who is in heaven. Uh, Did you notice the word your is used three times in this verse? Your light, your good works, your father in heaven. When you let your your light shine before men, they glorify your father in heaven. Jesus makes this personal. You are given the power of Christ to influence others. You can begin something that actually ends in heaven. That's how much influence that we have been given. We can point others to Jesus. We can lead them out of darkness into light. Whether or not you like it or not, we all influence others in good and bad ways. In Tom's new book, Growing Good Influence, it says, because it's always good to quote your pastor, quote, we have the power to help or hurt others. I suspect you agree. And I'm struck by how much that help or hurt flows from who we are personally, our attitudes, our practices, our theology, and our character all affect the ability to help others grow, unquote. We all have influence. Jesus did not say to live our lives in such a fashion that people would see our good deeds and say what marvelous and what outstanding people we are. A lamp does not call attention to itself. It's simply placed on a lampstand for where it gives the best illumination. And it's not always easy to perform good works in such a way that people will praise God rather than uh, uh, praising uh, the one performing the act. But it's still commanded. We are given the gift of humility to deflect that credit. We are not called to be magnificent chandeliers in a world for the world to admire but we are called to be a little single bulb LED nightlight because we want to be energy efficient and that a nightlight in the hall that to keep people from stumbling and falling when they're walking in the dark. We are called to make a difference to dispel the darkness. Some of us are called to be powerful floodlights and others are others will be a small spark, but we are all called. So you are salt and light. Jesus declares it. It's not merely a suggestion or a recommendation. Likewise, the church is to be a lighthouse, reflecting the same light into our world. But I believe that the influence of the church is not being felt in our society in the same way that it should. It has been reported that as high as 25% of the population claims to be born again. 
Uh, yet based on the modest impact that we are having, this just can't be true. Perhaps part of the problem is that we've been led to believe that our faith is, pure, is, a, is a purely personal thing, that we should keep it to ourselves. While I agree that our faith is personal and that it requires a personal decision on our part on whether or not we're going to believe in Jesus, but Jesus taught that we are not to keep it to ourselves. The words, let your light so shine, are a translation from a single group word, lampsado, which is, is an imperative. It, this meaning is an actual command. A few weeks ago, Pastor Bill spoke about being poor in spirit and how that was foundational to the understanding of the rest of Christ's message. In much the same way, the concept of being salt and light is foundational for us to understand the kingdom of God. We need a clear understanding of God's kingdom and how we actually fit into it. Our small group went through 20 passages in scripture that describe the kingdom of God, and then I challenged them to give their own brief description of what they learned and understood. Here's a few of them. The kingdom of God is Christ living in and through us on this earth. The kingdom of heaven is in us and around us. It's not about what we do, but what's in our hearts and who we are. It's not complicated. Even a child can understand. The kingdom of God brings life and freedom. It has dominion over all powers of darkness. The kingdom of God is the fulfillment of what God desires for all of his creation. I believe the kingdom is all of these and more. But what evidence is there for the kingdom? How do we know that it's actually real? Our passage today tells us that it's God's plan to announce and reveal his kingdom through us. It says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God, your father in heaven. So if I understand this correctly, it's in our lives as believers that the evidence for the existence of, of God and his kingdom, that it's, that it's our lives that are evidence. Our good works, our relationships, our compassion, our generosity, our willingness to seek justice and forgive others. Our, uh, our respect for the environment and even our worship. These are the evidence for the existence of the kingdom of God. Think about that for a moment. God's plan to reveal who he is and the life he offers, offers to his people, like uh, that he offers, is to reveal that through people like you and me. Not on Facebook or a social media campaign. Not on splashy billboards or a national newscast. Not through a government or through power or through victory and war, but in and through us. We're God's plan A, and there is no plan B. Have you ever noticed when you watch detective shows on TV or in movies that there's always, they're always looking at the crime scene in the dark with a flashlight? I'm not sure why they just don't turn the lights on. But the detective roams through the darkness, scanning the room with a powerful beam of light, looking for clues. I think this could be an illustration of how we are the light shining in the darkness, revealing evidence of who God is. Without a powerful beam of light, our world will remain in darkness with no evidence, and no evidence would be found. 
When Jesus roamed this earth, he said, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But now that he has left, he's telling us that we are the light of the world. We are to reflect God's light and reveal the kingdom. I'm a beekeeper, and I learn a lot from my bees. If I want to keep them, if I want to keep my bees inactive and quiet, I simply put them in the dark. They cluster together, and they remain relatively dormant. But give them light, and they explode with activity. When the sun comes up in the morning, they're off to work in a flurry. In the same way, if we remain in darkness, we become dormant and lifeless. We are called to live in the light. So I ask you again, what is your purpose? Jesus clearly states that as believers, our purpose is to be salt and light, seasoning and a stabilizing presence in our world. We are to reflect the light of Christ in dark areas. We are to be the evidence of the existence of an unseen spiritual father and of a new kingdom. That calling will look different for each of us, but you alone are salt and light. So, with tradition, here's your challenge. This week, take some time to think about the kingdom. Go for a walk and find a quiet spot and ask God to reveal just a little glimpse of his world, a little glimpse of what the kingdom that he has in mind. And ask him how you can be salt and light and how you might, with his help, make a difference. I'll call the worship team up and I'll just close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have heard the words of Jesus this morning, clearly telling us our purpose. You call us to be salt, giving of ourselves for the benefit of others, improving the world around us, using our gifts for the betterment and the glory, and preserving what is good. You call us to be light, acknowledging and praising the Spirit within us, and carrying light into the darkness. You call us to live well, that others would see your kingdom and it would give you the glory. A calling is a deeply personal and a unique message. And sometimes in our rush in our, in, and in our ambition, we miss hear, hearing you calling out to us. We humbly ask for you to forgive us. In your holiness, you have a redemption plan and you have surprisingly asked us to be part of it. If there is darkness in our lives, Please illuminate us. Give us ears to hear your voice. Soften our hearts to to feel your compassion. Open our eyes to see the way that you see and reveal your kingdom and teach us how we can live and give you the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.